This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Essie Miller, the Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Defense Department. Essie, this is a, a, an exit interview. So uh, first of all, welcome to the discussion and, and very sad when we see good people like yourself decide to uh, call it a career. So uh, congratulations on that decision. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate spending time with you this afternoon. I'm, I'm pretty excited about what's to come. All right, and that's, that's where we're going to start. So why did you decide to retire now? What made you say now is the right time to move on? I always knew it would be somewhere between 35, 40 years. And October of last year, my husband and I took just under a month and went to travel Southern Africa. And while we were roaming, it came to me that this was, it was the right time and I could do it. Because, you know, sometimes we're afraid about unplugging. I think it's safe to say I did it successfully. So it was a great opportunity to just give some thought and work the transition out in my head. You know, we've got some talented, strong leadership and the CIO. So I'm real comfortable with the decision. I've had a tremendous career. The organization has done great things and will continue to do so. So it just, it, it just feels right. Mentors have always said, I'd know when it was time, and I feel like this is it. And I think that's the key. When I, when I talk to a lot of people who leave federal service after a long time, it's, are they comfortable with it? Do they have that kind of pull, push? You know, what, what, what's, what's happening in, in their lives? So I guess that's the next question. Are you done, done? Are you going to come back in any sort of consultant contractor? Or do you think you're, you're just going to go, uh, and as soon as we get past this COVID thing, explore the world and enjoy retirement? I'm not quite sure yet, Jason. First priority is to decompress a bit, spend a little time with the family. And my husband and I had intended to do a fair amount of traveling, but of course with COVID-19, we'll probably delay that for a bit. But I also have elderly parents and this will give me an opportunity to spend a little bit more time with them than I have over the past few years. And you know, after decompressed for a bit, then I'll give it some thought, I'll explore. Just not quite sure what that looks like yet. And that's actually a good thing, right? A lot of times people want to go jump right back into the, the fray after a week or two weeks or whatever it was. So, you know, enjoy that. You deserve it, right? Because as you said, you mentioned how many years in government, discussed your career a little bit, and it wasn't all at DOD. You worked, I think, across the military services. Interesting story. In undergrad, my plan was to become an accountant. So I was all set my senior year to transition to graduate school, work on my MBA, Thought I had a well put together plan and then realized, you know what? I wanted to take a break from school. I was just a bit tired of academics. And fortunately, the Air Force had just started the Palace Acquired Intern Program. It was a great opportunity for recent college graduates. And because of my mix of math and computer programming courses, they offered me a position as an entry level computer programmer. I knew absolutely nothing about the military other than having family members who served, but I knew absolutely nothing also about a civilian career with the military or even the Department of Defense. Just had not crossed my mind. So I started my career in Montgomery, Alabama and spent my first seven years there programming old languages that we won't even mention in different function area, 
functional areas. Sorry, I started in medical and comptroller financial systems. Just a great foundation as it was one of the largest software production organizations in the Air Force, and it was a great place to get started. About seven years in, I was offered an opportunity to move to Langley Air Force Base Air Combat Command, and it was my first exposure to the operational side of the Air Force. So quite intriguing, as I was on a base with an active flight line, watching the fighters go by, and focused initially on airborne command and control, embedded software and common infrastructure and some of the command and control platforms. Went from there to focusing on deployable command and control, which was my exposure to our tactical systems. And then with space command and control, Milstar, Spectrum, all of those things that we're focused on today, I got my, my foundation early, early on. My first move further east to the Pentagon was in 97, as what we call a career broadener. And that's when you take a civilian out of their normal skills or expertise and give them something different to do, expose them. So I went from focusing on software, software development, and systems engineering to more strategic planning. And that's why I got my introduction to the PPBE or the planning, programming, budget execution process, which was great because everybody who considers being a leader in Department of Defense needs to understand how the money process works. But it was my first exposure. You might remember back then we were focused on eGov and how we transition processes out of the norm that we were used to in military standards to more commercially based systems. That's where I got my start on writing speeches for the senior leaders that I was working for. And exposure to, we call them the gray beards now, and which gave me a whole lot of insight and advice on career planning and how the military operates and things to consider that you know civilians may or may not get throughout their career. From there, a launch out to Utah, place I never imagined going, but it was an opportunity to go out and take on the responsibility of a CIO and IT director at one of the largest depot bases in the Air Force. So just, again, a tremendous opportunity to test my leadership and supervisory skills. And it was there that launched me into the world of senior executive service. So my high point was coming back to the Pentagon as an executive. So from there, as the CIO for the headquarters Air Force, which meant my focus was on the Air Force footprint in the Pentagon and in the National Capital Region, over to the Army as the CISO for a couple of years, and then my first look at OSD as the DOD CISO replacing Richard Hill. And then Secretary Shanahan offered me an opportunity to be the acting CIO for a while which was something I never would have imagined, but was just a great opportunity, very humbling and very eye-opening at the same time. And then when Dana was confirmed, I was even more humble when he asked me to stay on with, as his partner, as the principal deputy. So Jason, quick rundown, but an amazing career. Nothing that I would do differently, even with a few surprises throughout, 
and nothing that I take for granted. Just a tremendous opportunity. It's a fascinating ride you went through in so many ways. As you said, you, you kind of said, let me take a break from school and go back. Did you ever end up going back and get your MBA? I did. When I settled in at Langley, I finished, actually started and finished my MBA while I was there. So it was pretty cool to do it and had not taken in consideration the idea of doing it with folks that I, or peers that I worked with at the time. So some of the same folks I work with during the day were in classes with me in the evening, which, as you can imagine, made for some great lifelong relationships as well. That education, I'm sure, has also come in handy because as you learned through the experience of, of the broadening effort that you did, you know, when you came over to the Pentagon for the first time and you got exposure to the, the planning, the policies, the, the funding issues, the, the strategy side, that MBA piece probably played a huge role in your ability to not just talk the technology, which you could do, but now talk the business side, because as we hear so many times, the CIOs who can do both are, are the ones that are worth a million dollars or more. It postured me to ask different questions. As you say, less about technology, but marrying the technology with the business, particularly the investment side, to make sure we weren't just chasing the latest shiny technology, but understanding where it fit in the mission and the strategy for an organization which was tremendous. And I couple that with, you know, an opportunity to go down for Air Command and Staff College in Montgomery, and then later again, Air War College in Montgomery, gave me the strategic studies and the military operational exposure. So you put all of that together, and I'll be the first one to tell you that the Air Force made a tremendous investment in me. And I was determined to soak it all in and make it work so I could get back. Essie, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Essie Miller, the Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Defense Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Essie Miller, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Defense Department. Essie, this is an exit interview, if you will. You're retiring after more than 35 years of government service. Your last day is June 30th. So obviously, we're sad to see you go, but congratulations on the decision. Essie, you talked about programs from old languages, functional areas, medical, controller, financial systems, and it was, became a great foundation. How much are things different today? And, and I know quite a bit, but, but give me a sense from somebody who started with maybe in that COBOL or assembler type language to today, with it, which is, you know, whether it's Java or Python or whatever is being used, how different are things today? And, and is that maybe the, as you look back over the last 30 plus years, is that the best part of, of your career, you know? just seeing how much things have shifted and changed and, and progressed? You know, I get pretty excited when I look back. You know, Fortran, COBOL, ADA, which some people hadn't heard of. Assembler, I can't tell you when the last time I saw a punch card, and I'm okay with that. But having to go down and run it through, run a job, as they would used to say, and figure out where your errors are. It's just amazing to look at folks now, and it's very agile, and it's continuous. And you don't have to be in a large room with the raised floor programming when you do it. So the whole environment has just shifted from mainframe to give me a laptop even and let me go do my thing. But when I look at, you know, one of the areas I started was with medical systems. And it was laying the initial networks in medical treatment facilities for the Air Force, where I learned how to solder cable and run a network, just hands-on work, 
that most of our younger folks don't know and understand how to do today. And that's good because technology has just grown leaps and bounds. But again, I look at that as my foundation, critical thinking, how to put things together, how to go back and troubleshoot. It's just amazing to me how far we've come. So when you think about agile software development and sec DevOps and things that we are doing today, and you give it another couple of years and we will have evolved yet again. It's all, I think, the nature of the beast, which is pretty cool. Walk me back a little bit, because I imagine at the time that you came into the government, you were probably one of the few women, one of the few women of color to take on this computer programming, to be soldering cables, to be pulling wires. Uh, someone told me, you know, pliers and wires person. How much did that kind of influence your path forward? How much does that influence your, your current career track? I can address that in a couple of different ways, Jason. I like that. What'd you say? Pliers and? Pliers and wires. Oh, <laughs> we don't really have to do that. that much anymore, huh? <laughs> yeah, not at all. But, it, you know, I have clear memories of, again, sitting at my desk with a soldering iron and putting together uh, a computer. But I also remember the predominantly older enlisted guys who taught me how to do those things, you know, and then teaching me, again, it was critical thinking, understanding how things came together. If we were to ask some of the young folks today to put together a board, they'd probably look at us like we're crazy. But it, it was not lost on me that in the organizations I was in, I was, was typically the only African-American female. Only on one occasion, there might've been three of us there. But I, I tried to make it less of an issue when it became important to perform and do my job. I was really focused on learning. That shifted, however, when it came time to mentoring. I often tell the story of going for my first mentoring session with one of the male seniors. And he told me not to worry about career planning because yeah, you'll fall in love, you'll get married, you'll have children, and a career won't be important. And I was pretty shaken about that. You know, how dare he cast me in a certain light to know that, hey, what you're doing today won't be important at some point. So I put that with being told I would never be any more than a GS9, you name it, not always as obvious as you would have it, but still there. My, the foundation from my parents made it real easy, one, to understand who I was and what I brought to the table and what I could offer in terms of value. That level of confidence just took those, I think, things that were intended to be discouragement and used as strength for me. It just made me buckle down even more. I look back now and the numbers probably a little bit higher than they were then, but still fairly small. And I think it's an area we have to work on. I did a similar interview with Bill Marion when he left the Air Force, the deputy CIO of the Air Force, who I'm sure you know well. And it was interesting. Obviously, he came from a different perspective, but he also fell into the government, uh, the IT world, fell into this idea of, of programming and, and, and cybersecurity. And one of the big things he talked about, and, and maybe I'll ask you to kind of touch upon as well, is if looking back over his career, the one thing he would have spent more time on, the one thing he would have really pursued much more broadly 
and in a bigger way is the training aspect is that mentoring piece let me pull the string on that a little bit walk me through some of the things one is how, how is it working today in dod and two are there things that you would like to see either dod do or like to see maybe you have done that you would like to see make sure it continues that area is near and dear to me jason and i would tell you sometimes it pays to go back to the fundamentals Bill came in the same program I did. He was a few years behind me. And when that team was recruiting, they were out with a footprint on college campuses. There was a focus on making sure that they were at historically black colleges and universities because diversity was very important to them. I think over time, you know, as technology evolves, much like we're doing now, we do things in a distant way. Uh, doing it online, doing it various different ways, but you don't have that face-to-face. -face. You know, if the environment and the funding would allow, that would be the thing I'd push us back to doing. You know, putting a face on the college campuses to actually have conversations, particularly with our females and our minorities, so that they understand the opportunities that are available. I often say we have to change the conversation. We have to be a bit more transparent. Whereas I applied for the job and the Air Force reached out to me, I gave no thought to it being a civil service job with the Department of Defense. We need to do a better job of connecting those opportunities. When th people think about military, they think about serving active duty. That's okay, but you'll always have a population that is not open to that for some reason. We've got to make sure folks understand the civilian opportunities that are available. Once we do that, make sure they understand the, the importance of technology and the importance of the sciences in, in helping us as a nation move forward. So think about it. I said I started out studying accounting. I took computer programming classes as a part of my minor. Had I not had that combination, Air Force probably would not have offered me a job. And it was a job then, what I didn't know that it would evolve into a 35 year career. Those are the kinds of conversations I wish we could go back and have. It'll continue to be a focus on my, of mine no matter what I decide to do when this is over. But I think we just have to do a better job of having the conversation with the generation behind us. Couldn't agree more. One of the biggest shortcomings, I think, across all of government, not just DOD, is explaining what is government service, how does it work, why is it important, and it's just I think that that's the missing piece is under that understanding that you point to right. in, in stark detail. Let's talk about your career a little bit and some of the programs and projects and accomplishments. When you look back over your thirty last thirty five years, any programs or projects or, or anything that stands out to you that you'd like to highlight? The one that always comes to mind for me, Jason, is when we moved to a common access card. You know, we all carry them today. Some agencies carry PIV cards, but it was, I'll, I'll never forget the culture shift for the Department of Defense. The military had been used to carrying their ID card as Geneva Conventions, and it had always looked a certain way. Now to look at a different form factor with a chip and a mag stripe. It was, it was a huge shift for the department. And to be a part of, 
you know, the implementing of the Deer's Rapid system to produce the cards and helping folks understand how to PK enable their systems, you know, that is foundational to everything that we're doing today. And it plays a huge part on the cybersecurity aspect of what we're doing. And I always look back and say, wow, that was pretty simple, but it really wasn't. But it was also a huge transformation for the department because it touched everything. I just didn't realize the magnitude at the time. So every day I look at my card, I realize, you know what? I was a part of that transformation and it feels pretty good. Essie, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Essie Miller, the Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Defense Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Essie Miller, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Defense Department. Essie, this is an exit interview, if you will. You're retiring after more than 35 years of government service. Your last day is June 30th. So obviously, we're sad to see you go, but congratulations on the decision. One of the things about the, the Common Access Card, it's in many ways, it's the program, it's the it's a effort that people love to hate, right? But I think you're really onto something when you talk about it transformed DOD in so many different ways, the foundational pieces to cybersecurity. Walk me through a little bit about that as well, because one of your past roles, as you mentioned, was the Chief Information Security Officer for the Army. You also spent time with other cyber type roles. How did the CAC today, how do you still see the, the, those remnants of those early years of, of the CAC really have an effect in, in the way DOD goes about cybersecurity today? If we talk multi-factor authentication today, you know, what you know and something that you have, we were doing that and putting that in place when we developed the CAC. So you've got your card, you have your PIN, you have your PKI certificates, and if you look now, Jason, at the cybersecurity scorecard, you know, one of the big things that we look at is whether or not our systems are PK enabled and how we have multi-factor authentication. How do we prevent identities from being spoofed by adversaries? You know, so much was and still is reliant upon the technology in that card, particularly for some of our older systems, older being relative. But to me, it was one of the, the first tranches of hardening our security, cybersecurity across the department. And obviously we have evolved and will continue, but still, no matter what I do, I'll need my card to log into the network. I'll need my card to get in the Pentagon. There's so many things that we use that card for and because it's tied to my identity. It will be one of the core things still tied to our ICAM strategy when it's released, but it will be tied core to what we do in terms of identity for a while. And even with the move to drive credentials, even with the recent surge of remote teleworking, you know, so many laptops, so many people are still using their common access card to log on to the network, as you said, to, to, to authenticate at least to the computer. And then it's also the beginnings or the basis of the move towards zero trust. I know talking with the folks at DISA, for instance, there's some pilots going on there, uh, National Security Agency and Cyber Command. Walk me through a little bit about, you know, maybe the future of, of since we're talking cybersecurity, where do you see it going? What are some of the things being put in place today, again, enabled by the CAC that will kind of start to play out in three, five, seven years from now? will always have some form of an identification card. It will most likely 
still be our, our token for access in various areas. But you're right, zero trust is where we have to go. Because the assumption is the adversary already has a presence in the network. It really does become a discussion of how do you protect the data and who should have access to the data. And if we get the identity and ICAM strategy correct, this should be a fairly, I say relatively easy shift, but heavy lift for us to really focus on who has or who should not have access to data and move us away from perimeter defense as we know it to, to focus on the data. Also very important with regard to the audit that we went through last year. The preponderance of the IT findings were with regard to access, access to systems, making sure that we are moving away from still information. When I leave on the 30th, you know, there should not be a gap between my departure and the clearance of my credentials in the system. Those are the kinds of things that we need to focus on. How do we close that gap? And moving to a zero trust architecture will help posture us for that. We saw some exceptions that we had to put in place when we walked through the pandemic, but it was real easy, I keep saying easy, but it's all relative, you know, allowing the CAC certificates that had expired to be used for a minimal period of time because we didn't want people to have to come back in the building right away. You know, extending building access. We allowed people to do that remotely based on their identity. And it was basically for the health and welfare of the force during the pandemic. That was critical to us. But it was important that we had the capability in place already that would allow us to do that. So as we looked at telework capabilities, we had to clearly define the do's and don'ts of the environment for the workforce. We had people who were teleworking already, but we had an exponential increase over a relatively short amount of time. I think we went from about 95,000 to well over a million teleworkers on the network. So key was helping them understand, hey, just because you're working from home doesn't lessen the importance of cybersecurity. We made sure they had the do's and don'ts of telework, the do's and don'ts of working on the duty, and understanding the things that they needed to do from home, whether they were on a government or on a personal device. Key to us was making sure that they had capability to continue to do their job and to do it with ease. It was a quick ramp up for us, and the focus initially was pushing out devices, increasing capacity, and again, making sure everybody understood the rule set while making sure we had that back end in place with Joint Force Headquarters, Doden and Cybercom, and the DISA team watching and monitoring the network to make sure we were looking for indicators of compromise and that we were maintaining the, the well-being, so to speak, of the network and the force as a result. So a tremendous amount of effort over the last few months to make sure that folks could continue to work remotely. But I'll tell you, Jason, it, it, it solidified to me how dedicated the force was and is because they were determined to continue to work and to continue to produce, both on the unclassified and classified side. It was our responsibility to make sure they had the tools they needed to do that. I want to go down that path as well, talk a little bit about the response from DOD to the coronavirus pandemic emergency. 
a lot of industry, a lot of outside experts were looked at how you guys handled it and just gave you such big kudos, such, such great praise for not only being flexible and agile, but coming up with the, you know, kind of getting the collaboration tools out the door much more quickly, I guess, through Microsoft Teams to enable the employees, the servicemen and women to continue to do their job. What do you think is the one of the one or two or three biggest lessons learned from the coronavirus pandemic emergency that will carry on when this is all said and done? I don't know that we learned anything new. I'd say we reinforced what we already knew. One that we've got a dedicated and resilient force that could adjust to the change, but two, understanding that we as a community both the DOD CIO and the CIOs of the military departments had to come together even closer than before to make sure we had a concerted enterprise-focused effort to put capability in the hands of our users. We stood up the task force almost immediately, focused on equipment, what type of funding we need, what kind of capacity we need, and understanding the user force, because we started this with a conversation of what type of users do we have and what type of capability that needs. So that ranged just from the individual who only needed access to email to someone that needed access to email and files and collaboration. So if you look at that whole spectrum, then the conversation became what, what devices and what capability do we have on hand? And what are those things that we need to come up with fairly quickly to put in place? Out of that, CVR was born, the commercial virtual remote capability. We had a significant population across the department who had already fielded some version of Office 365. We knew there was a collaboration capability in that. So we decided and, and worked, the DISA team worked their magic to make sure that we had a contract in place and a partnership to push the capability out as quickly as possible. One of the huge lessons in that was, as we began to push it, we got ahead of educating the users. So when users were provisioned for a CVR account, they were getting emails before they knew what CVR was. And we had to take a bit of a pause to make sure the force knew, one, what the capability was, two, how it would be exposed to them, and three, how they would use it. But here again, the pivot was fairly quickly in putting together a CVR team and we built on the organizational entities that we already have in place to do that for us. Everything from the provisioning overnight for some organizations to helping folks activate their accounts to answering help desk. And you think help desk, you think a single entity, maybe JSP, maybe the enterprise help desk at DISA, but we had champions all over, Jason, from the various organizations, people who stepped up to say, hey, I understand the technology. I can do the first level resolution within my organization. We made sure those folks had what they need and were part of a broader collaborative network, exchanging lessons learned. I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that in my career, but it was the, was the phrase, you never let a burning platform go wasted. This was taking advantage of that burning platform and having folks not run from the fire, but run in to help. And it was just amazing to watch the department shift. You know, now it's, we've got a capability out there. 
and folks are concerned about what's next and how do we maintain that. And those are the conversations we have now. How do we build on the successes that we put in place as a result of the pandemic? But if nothing else we know, should something else arise, we can shift. We have the capability, we have the capacity, and we just need to understand if there's a mission change, if there's a requirements change, but we know we've got the machinery in place to facilitate that, which is great. I would say that's probably the biggest lesson learned that you have that machinery in place that you can come together. It wasn't that you were surprised by it or that you couldn't have done it before, but the urgency of the situation opened the door for this agility, for this flexibility, for this speed to happen. Would you say, as you said, you maybe have never seen this throughout your career, you know, even CAC, as we talked about earlier, took, you know, 15 years really to roll out and get, get really as part of the culture of the, of the department and across government, it took a long time. Would you say that's the biggest lesson or the biggest takeaway from the coronavirus pandemic emergency? I would say yes. And, and the lesson that we can do it, we can do it at a pace that we don't normally operate, and we could do it at scale. But in doing that, you know, we took some risks and we made some quick decisions. But we know what we need to do to do that going forward. You know, we know what kind of conversations we need to have. We have a clear idea of what the network looks like. We have a clear understanding on the range of users that we have. And again, it was not without hiccups throughout the process, but I don't know, I don't know that anybody would tell you we were not successful in this effort. Essie, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Essie Miller, the Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Defense Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Essie Miller, the Principal Deputy CIO at the Defense Department. Essie, this is an exit interview, if you will. You're retiring after more than 35 years of government service. Your last day is June 30th. Talk about the to-do list that you're leaving. And I know that John Sherman, who's taking over for you as Principal Deputy CIO of DOD, has been on board, I guess, since early June. So there's some overlap between you and him. So you're able to kind of, if you will, show him the ropes, show him where all the uh, potholes to avoid are. Give me a sense of what are some of those things that maybe you're leaving for him on his to-do list. We started this year, Jason, as the year of execution for the digital modernization strategy. And John has been a tremendous partner from the Intel community for us for a while now. And him stepping into the role, he'll, he'll be the perfect partner to push the execution of the modernization plan. He's got great opportunities ahead. We've established the chief data officer. We're publishing a strategy this summer. We'll stand up electromagnetic magnetic spectrum office here soon to address spectrum needs across the department. IT reform will remain a focus across the fourth estate organizations. Uh, my advice to him would be to continue to build on what we've already put in place, further establishing the governance process and the relationships with the military CIOs, particularly as we focus on modernization tasks. He, of all people, has a great opportunity to bridge the IC and the DOD IT communities because there's so much we're doing that links together. But most of all, I see his role as taking care of the team and enabling them to succeed. Because there's so much on the plate to do with the digital modernization strategy. I see that as the right focus. The modernization strategy, I think, will endure. 
because we've got the right things between cloud, C3, data, cyber, and AI. We've addressed all of the things that we need to look toward in the future. John will be a great champion of those things. So I'm really excited about him coming into the organization. It's not often we get time with our successor in a transition like this, but thanks to the pandemic, we had a bit of a gift. So we are spending the last couple of weeks together and he is just really excited to be a part of the organization. Let me dig just a little bit deeper on, on some of those other areas that you mentioned. You mentioned the CDO has been named. You're publishing, a, I guess, a data strategy. Is that the strategy you mentioned? Yes, this summer. And then also the IT reform across the fourth estate is something else that we followed a lot. Is this something that your office specifically has been kind of working with DISA and, and others to consolidate and get rid of redundancies and if you will move to shared services? Yes, you know, we've been working shared services and the present management agenda for a while. Internal to the department, that's all captured under the IT reform umbrella. Cloud adoption, the reduction of data centers as we move to the cloud. We're looking at establishing a central and an enterprise help desk. And the key is really, we have so many pockets across the fourth estate that are doing the same thing. How do we become more effective in providing those services from a central location where applicable? Or how do we look at distributing that capability differently? It all turns to how we do in business in the department and how do we do it effectively. We want the folks at Cybercom and JFHQ Doden to have a clear vision of what is on the network, what we have to protect. And IT reform gives us an opportunity to uh, reduce that footprint a bit and have a clear view of what's on the network. We are working with all of the CIOs in each of the fourth estate agencies to make sure that they are focused on the areas under IT reform, but under digital modernization writ large. So that, go back to the way we started the conversation, I grew up in a functional area, either finance or medical or logistics, there are certain things that are core and common across all of those from an IT aspect. We need to look at that from an enterprise where we can, and that's where IT reform will help us. As you talk to John, as you guys kind of worked together over the last month or so, was there one or, and, and obviously John's an experienced person. He's been a CIO at the IC. He's been, he worked over at the CIA. At the same time, DOD is a different type of organization. It's not the same as CIA. It's not the same as the IC. Was there one piece of advice or one lesson you learned that you would pass on to John or whomever else in the CIO community, whether it's they're coming to DOD or whether they're just a CIO at a civilian agency, based on your experience and based on, on the things you've seen and heard and learned? Well, I'll tell you, we've been focused over the last week or so on making sure he knows who his strategic partners are in the building and building those relationships. The, the intent is to understand the, the various mission areas and how we connect with them. You know, for so long, IT was a enabler. I think John clearly understands that we, we focus and the goal is to be mission partners so that our Various PSAs and organizations know to come to us early on when they've got a goal 
or strategy that they'll look into achieve so we can help shape that from a technology aspect. But my big thing with him is, you know, getting to know the key relationships in the Pentagon. So it's real easy to pick up the phone to ask for help or folks for to pick up the phone and return and call him. It's a zero sum game with regard to dollars and we need to make sure we're investing in being good stewards. And again, coming back to taking care of the team so that he's enabling them to succeed. All things I think John will do very well with. And actually it makes it real easy for me to leave Jason because I leave the organization I think in a great space. And it leaves me as a cheerleader, just doing it from the outside. Essie, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. I see we're just about out of time, but before I let you go, I always like to ask this question of someone who's been in government for a long time and, and has seen a lot and, and seen how much change has gone on. If there's one or two things you could change about federal IT, what would it be if you could wave a magic wand and say, I want to get rid of X or, or add Y, what would that be? A couple of things. You know, we're seeing change occur now, but the world, as we've talked about, has changed so much over the last decade. Our processes have not necessarily kept up. You know, we've moved from purchasing large systems to focusing on capabilities that evolve quickly. We need flexibility in the acquisition process and in the funding process so we can be a bit more agile. But the good news is our acquisition and controller communities are already working on that. The thing that's near and dear to me is we need to continue to look at how we bring in talent. The next generation won't stay for 35 years. It's just not the culture. So we have to figure out how we become more flexible in our hiring. And that next group of leaders may be someone who swing between industry and government. We have to figure out how we allow that to happen and how to identify the talent and skill set we need so that you know, we're developing it or we're bringing it in from the outside. But most of all, we've got to figure out where our next generation of leaders are coming from. All great things, all things that we're looking at in the department already. And my encouragement would, would be to continue focusing on those things. I've had a tremendous career, wouldn't take anything for it, but it's, it's time to let the next group step in and it's time to take a break. All right, and a well-deserved break at that. Let me uh, thank my guest. Essie uh, Miller is the Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Defense Department, at least for a few more days. Essie, thank you so much for your time today, and of course, thank you for your service to the country. Thank you, Jason. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network.